Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Let's do some Bible teaching time. All right? Okay, throw up a hand if you need a copy of God's Word. Glenn's going to bring it to you because he's awesome like that. We are in Daniel chapter 2. Um, I forgot to look up where Daniel starts in the hardback. So the first person in a hardback who finds Daniel 2, would you please shout out? 725, thank you, Renault. 725 will get you to Daniel chapter 2. I just keep finding Ezekiel because it's such a big book, and I just keep thumbing until it's not Ezekiel. That's how I find it each time. This week's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to read a little bit, then I'm going to talk a little bit, and then I'll read a little bit, and then I'll talk a little bit. And then we'll be done. Renault put up the first vote for, I don't believe you, Greg. (laughs) He's probably right. That sounds simple. That sounds brief. However, um, if you've not been with us, allow me briefly to catch you up to speed. What's going on in Daniel is about 2,600 years ago, 2,700 years ago, Israel had sinned against God so much that he allowed their enemies, foreign armies, to not only win the war, but so completely win it that in two phases, about 10 years apart, they grabbed a bunch of Israelites and took them off to Babylon. First thing they did is took about the top 10% of what they assessed for capabilities. These people are smart, intelligent, know how to run a government, the best commanders of the army, etc. They took the talent pool. This makes a lot of sense. And today we think of information being in the internet, but before the internet, what, there are people that know certain things, right? <laughs> now we know nothing. So, um, but if you take away the top 10% of the army, you are probably taking away a lot of the knowledge of how to run a war, and I don't want you to rebel. Does that make sense? Okay? No, it doesn't make sense. Uh, let's see. How do I know? <laughs> You, you want academia to fight you? Take away the top 10%. Do you want their money to be fighting you? Take away the top 10%. And so the first, um, and especially those that know how to run a government. So Nebuchadnezzar took, uh, which perhaps ironically is essentially a tithe that belonged to God. So if you, it's blasphemy upon blasphemy. Um, took it from Israel after Israel was conquered Daniel and his three friends were part of that. They they were young bucks that showed proficiency in their academics, and they showed wisdom at a young age. They were probably 13 or 14 years old when this happened to them, and they are taken off to Babylon to serve most likely as eunuchs, but to serve in very high-level government positions in Babylon. So they didn't ask for this. Throughout Israel's history, God had warned that this could happen if Israel continued to rebel against their God, which they did. Um, And we haven't pointed this out, but I think it's really cool that we should be looking. Not only are we seeing the faithfulness of these four godly men, you don't see any bitterness either. Never are we looking at any of these four men going, man, God, why did you carry us? This shouldn't have happened. We didn't deserve this. These four guys don't think that. They don't even go anywhere near blaming God for their circumstances. You and I do that, but... These, these guys are, are being, uh, their whole life isn't included in this book. It's, this is a highlight reel, right? Like, like social media, we, on, we only show our fun moments, and then it looks like our life is great. Um, Daniel isn't about these four men, it's about God, and so it's some of the points where the Holy Spirit filled them to do the right thing and the courageous thing. Those are the stories we get. It doesn't mean they weren't sinners in between the chapters. Does that make sense? These guys were still sinners. Okay. All right. Chapter 2. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have dreamed a dream, and deeply, uh, that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. 
So let's talk. Those of you who read ahead or you've been in church for a while, who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream? Does God have to talk to his enemies? Does, does Nebuchadnezzar deserve to be told something about the future? Okay. So we're already seeing mercy from God. And if, if I haven't told you enough, you were his enemy the first time he talked to you. Right? God loves Nebuchadnezzar. And this is super offensive. If you're a 6th century BC Jew, you don't want God to love Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody remember the book of Jonah? Very similar evil empire. Similar. One of God's prophets who's supposed to be delivering a message so that God can love Nineveh. I want to keep pointing this out. One, so that we know the character of God. He doesn't just tell us when Jesus comes, love your enemies. He's always been loving his enemies. Right. He models it. Yeah. If he didn't love his enemies, there'd be no church. The church would not exist. We would all be lost. We would all be in a state of rebellion. So he gives a dream to this powerful king, and it's a scary dream. <laughs> Again, every time we think of the soft, fluffy Jesus, <laughs> he's willing to make a king soil himself. And it's still love. It's still love. He wants to communicate something. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered in Aramaic, answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. So, what they are saying is very, very normal for ancient astrology and even modern astrology, you know. Um, so my understanding from what I studied is these guys had a book of all kinds of imaginable symbols and what their meanings were. And these guys were experts at this book. So when you had a dream, they just consulted all the different parts of the book. Oh, you had a bear down by the river. Okay, what does a bear symbolize? What does a river symbolize? And they would just kind of make it. So it, that sounds a lot like a fortune cookie to me. You can say things that are so vague that there could be some truth in them somewhere, unless you're empowered uh, demonically, it's going to be a fortune cookie guess. I'm not aware of any biblical example where even demonic powers were able to tell the future. They did a lot when Pharaoh's sorcerers were trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Moses. They couldn't do everything that Moses could do, which was awesome, of course, but they, but they could do some things. Um, I'm not aware of any knowledge of the future, though. If Satan did know the future, I don't think he would have had Judas betray Jesus. Just a thought. So I think that that might be God territory. This might be just God territory. And so these guys are saying, hey, tell us your dream, and we're going to plug it into the machine, so to speak, through our little book, and we'll, yeah, we've done this our whole lives. This is our job to do this. Absolutely. We'd be happy to serve. Verse 7. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 5. But the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was, like I'm not going to tell you what it is. You tell me what it was if you so, actually have magical powers and what it means. You ready for this? You will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. couple of thoughts. Number one, if you were just torn limb from limb, are you concerned about what your house looks like? Right? Hey, they bashed down the door and smashed all the windows. Yeah, my arms aren't attached to my body anymore. I'm not worried about that, right? Second thought. Is this guy evil? When I tell you that God loves Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not trying to soften it like, well, he was really just a, a decent guy, but he was kind of misunderstood. <laughs> I, 
power corrupts, absolute corrupt, power corrupts absolutely. Right? I don't want us to glaze over this. He is making a demand, which the astrologers are about to point out in their sheer terror. He is making a demand no one has ever made, ever. He's demanding that somebody... He, you know, his logic is sound. I already had the dream. If you can see the future, you can see the past. So tell me what I dreamt. That's incredibly logical. The problem, no one has ever asked for their hucksters to show real power. And it is his evil, and it is his demand, is completely unreasonable demand, where you and I, if we're in the moment, we'd be soiling ourselves too. Oh my gosh, how could he possibly... And even his evil demand is just setting the stage for God to show off. This is setting the stage. If you say in advance, no one's allowed to go up to home plate unless he can hit a grand slam off a 102-mile-per-hour pitch blindfolded with one hand. If you make all those rules in advance, and there happens to be one guy on earth who can do it, you have just eliminated everybody else, and so the stage is set. Would this one guy like to come forward or not? Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance is setting the stage for God. No one else can meet his demands. There is no other hope. And these guys don't know God. And so they're saying there is no hope. For them, it's correct. Verse 6, But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. They're not crazy. This is how their whole life has worked. It's normal for you to tell me the dream. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologer said to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. Isn't that a really awesome parenthetical phrase, on earth? If you guys have read Ecclesiastes, the writer is constantly saying, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, like God is exempted from all the rules of life. You and I, look, this is how it works under the sun. God is exempted from the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) So, yeah. No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand, because they don't know God, is impossible. Here's where they're almost right. No one except the gods, these guys are polytheists, they don't know Yahweh. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. That's what we call a breadcrumb, folks. That's a breadcrumb. Sometimes we don't see it until we're looking backwards from Christmas. The book of Revelation, in one spot, I believe in chapter 4, uses the name Emmanuel three times in like two sentences. God with us, he will be with us, he will be with us, he will be with his people, right? Isaiah uses that word to say about his first coming, when he's born, what we call Christmas, that God will be with his people. And he's, they are saying here, there might be some deities out there, they could tell you the future, but they don't live here with us. Again, this is setting the stage for Yahweh to do what Yahweh does. Because before Israel rebelled, he was with us. He told us to set up the tabernacle and later the temple, and he dwelled amongst his people behind a curtain. He was with us. He walked away as discipline, as chastisement of his people because we would not follow him and serve him and do what's shine, light, shine the light in the, a dark world. That was Israel's purpose from the beginning, and we wouldn't do it. These guys don't know of a God who would be with us. They've never even heard. Verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. 
When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, Why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. This is conjecture on my part, but as I've read this this week, I've wondered, if you're commanded to kill somebody, don't you just walk in and <laughs> stick them with a sword? The conjecture on my part here is that Arioch, because this is what we've seen so far in chapter 1, my conjecture is that Arioch has the utmost respect of Daniel and is probably like apologizing. I have no idea. The text doesn't say. The text just tells us there's room for conversation. He respects Daniel enough to say, Daniel, I'm so sorry, but the king has ordered your death. You know, and, and Daniel's able to ask, and he tells him the whole story. Um, 16. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. And so, how respected is Daniel now? The king respects him enough to give him more time. He wasn't in the room when the original command was given. Fascinating. Verse 17. Then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with other wise men of Babylon. So he calls his three friends to prayer and a very specific prayer. We don't interpret dreams. We're asking God for the meaning of the dream, right? So Daniel is really clear, and he's going to be really clear later in the story with what he tells Nebuchadnezzar. And it was called mercy. Like, God, you don't owe us this. You don't owe us this. It, it, it would be mercy. Would you tell us, please? All right. Verse 19. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. Those of you who are comfortable marking things in your Bible, you underline, circle, highlight, that sentence tells you everything you need to know about the book of Daniel. 21, really the whole thing, but 21, the first two lines. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. There's your thesis for the whole book. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in the darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what, uh, what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. What did Arioch just call him? is rich with irony, but it's important. I'm pretty sure Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's a captive right now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his wise men are the ones who are captive right now. Daniel has just been freed because his God has told him what's true and told him exactly what he needed. Hey, you remember how we were strong and we conquered these people over there? We're finding ourselves conspicuously beholden to their deity right now. <laughs> Who's in charge here? <laughs> God's people can be in handcuffs anytime God allows. Who's in charge here? Verse 26. 
The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, and this is where he's being clear. This is evangelism 101. There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven. That's at least the third time I've heard heaven referenced up there. And he's speaking singular. There is a God, not lots of gods like your, your other magi were telling you about. There is one God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay and smashed them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Now, The way that pride works, if you're the sole leader of a country, you can do whatever you want, and you lead them into battle, lead them into battle, lead them into battle, and you're great on the battlefield, and you're a great politician, and great with the economy, and you build this empire, what's that going to do to your pride? What if God says, everything you built will last for a minute? Somebody else will build something else that they'll be really proud of. It'll last for a minute or two. Then somebody else is going to build something they're really proud of, and they think, right? Kings talk about themselves. I mean, well, let's be really honest, okay? How long did the thousand-year Third Reich last? Twelve years. We as Americans, we just call it the Third Reich. That's not what Germans called it. They believed that there was a golden age of a thousand years that had been inaugurated. Okay. This is the way kings work. We think we're a really big deal, and God laughs. And so he shows an image of these successive kingdoms, none of them which really last in their own power. They just get replaced by another kingdom. They're not much stronger than the next kingdom that's going to come along, let alone this stone that smashes all of them to bits that are so small that the wind could blow them away. This is, a, this is a picture of utter destruction. Nobody looks at a gold statue and thinks, someone could get that into such tiny little bits that the wind could blow it away. And that is how completely, utterly destroyed. Okay, so. <laughs> verse 36. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabitants of the world. And has, That's a little bit superlative, right? Where are my history students at? Did Babylon cover the whole world? Hey, did it cover the known world to them? Yeah, it, it was a big deal. Um, some have argued Babylon was the world's first superpower. Like We think of Egypt back uh, during... Uh, Israel's captivity there. We think of that being a really big deal. Babylon had today what we would call, per, well, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, parts of Turkey, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. So what, what just a few hundred years earlier was land room enough for two or three empires, Babylon had all of it. So imagine three superpowers all coming under the umbrella of one person. This is going to be a very arrogant man. That's a very big army. Okay. And so he's not blowing smoke to say God has given you tremendous power and tremendous authority. It really is true. Verse 38. 
He's made you, uh, he has made you the ruler over all the inhabitants, uh, inhabited world and has even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. An inferior kingdom can come up after yours. <laughs> That's how futile your efforts are. It won't be as awesome as yours, but you'll still be dead. <laughs> after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but, will, uh, but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. Does Daniel have Nebuchadnezzar's attention at this point? You're going to be long gone... God will set it up. A God that you don't recognize. You think he's the defeated deity of some armpit of your empire way over there. Daniel is saying he is the only God. He's the God in heaven. He makes kings rise and fall. He's going to set up a kingdom that will never end. Ever. Whoa. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great, the great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Let me ask you guys a biology question. Who is really good at biology in high school? You're still in high school, you're good at biology? Yeah. Yeah. So from what we know about living organisms, what are the odds of you taking a rock and putting it uh, in any environment, doesn't matter what, a petri dish, under a microscope, what are the odds of the rock growing? Do rocks grow? <laughs> so what did you learn at church today? Well, rocks don't grow. Um, I'm going to come next week. Um, yeah, rocks don't grow. <laughs> I got Kevin on that one. I got a chuckle. <laughs> That's the point, guys. Everybody knows rocks don't grow. So how does this thing, a rock smashing gold and iron and all that, okay, that's kind of cool, that's semi-plausible. A rock growing isn't. It grows into a mountain that covers the entire earth. And we're told that it's eternal. Nothing can make it go away. And that it's from God. Human hands did not build this kingdom. This sounds a lot. Again, we've got to read our Bible left to right. God made it. We screwed up our relationship with him. He's promising deliverance. He's showing us that we can't live by the law. He sends a savior, and now we live in light of our new relationship with that savior. The Bible reads left to right. Sometimes, when we get to later passages in the scripture, we go, I think that's what God was saying all along. Yeah. What about in Matthew 13, where God says, hey, the kingdom of God is like this. A little seed dies, and it becomes this tree, and it's so expansive, ever-growing, that all the birds of the earth can nest in its branches. There's room for everybody in this kingdom. That's what it sounds like. It covers the whole earth? That's a little bit extreme. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's invited in. God made it. God sent it. It had devastating effects on any and all other kingdoms. 
Now, if we, again, we've got to uh, have our understanding of Babylon in place here. We're not going to understand this rock. If you really, really, really love your country, that's great. But to understand that all of the nations are different degrees of Babylon, even if right now a country is really uh, honoring toward God and cares what he has said in his word, um, the scriptures are very clear. There's a point where all the nations are going to rise up against him. I know that's bad news. Um, If you love your country, if your country even halfway loves Jesus, there will be a point where they don't. It's going to get darker. So we don't look at these other nations getting smashed to bits, and we don't look at that with sadness, because every Babylon is looking to exalt their false gods. They're not looking to honor Christ in any way. And when we are lured and tempted into the worship of false gods under false methods of thinking, any system of thought where something or someone is ultimate besides Jesus Christ, do you know that we're following a system that's broken, it's abusive to you, it dishonors God, and he's going to smash it? Guys, there are things in our life right now, we are following it, we're giving our whole heart to it, we're reading all of the books, we're devoting our time and energy, and God's going to smash it. He will. Do you think do you think the slave trade can survive what God's going to do to it? Buying and selling of human beings? If God can smash Babylon, he can smash our evil behavior too. The sex industry You deserve gratification. You deserve it now. You think God can smash that? Do you think a God who loves every one of his image bearers would do anything less than smash it? Is there a cult on planet Earth that teaches everybody to worship money? Do you think God will smash it? Is he already smashing it by offering you a better Savior? Is there a false god on earth with a temple telling everybody that they should worship entertainment? Have you been to a professional football stadium? It's a temple. Some people think that Jerry World in Dallas cost $1.7 billion to build, one building, so that everybody could come and worship entertainment. They didn't go there to make offerings. $11 for a beer, that's a sacrifice. You bet they made sacrifices. They wore the appropriate priestly garb with the right number and the right color and the right logo on it. They cheered when they were supposed to cheer. Or the God of comfort worshipped on a lazy boy in your own house? No, no, just me? Okay, all right. I worship the God of comfort from time to time. Is God strong enough to smash our false gods, and is he loving enough to smash them? Those are the two questions. And God is telling us 600 years before Jesus came and inaugurated this kingdom, this tree that's going to be ever-expanding, this rock that is going to grow into this mountain that covers the entire earth, it's going to smash every dark thing that's enslaving you. And that's good news. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel. Side note, that never happens. Like this king of kings figure bowing down before Daniel, whoa, and worshiped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods. What? This would have been blasphemy 60 seconds ago, right? But the leader is saying it. The Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs 
of the province of Babylon while Daniel rem- remained in the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't lying about that part. I'll give you lots of cool stuff if you tell me my dream and what it means. Was that dream good news for Nebuchadnezzar? I have a vote for no, another vote for no. Now, if you were a humble man, it would have been a nothing burger. To be told that the empire you built won't last forever seems very rational. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have in any of his history books an empire that had lasted forever. The only way you would get there is through arrogance. Oh, mine will last forever. I'm going to be the one guy who figures it out. It should have been, yeah, nations rise and nations fall. Or whatever. But what about that stone that smashed all the nations and grows into a mountain that covers the whole earth? Is that good news for Nebuchadnezzar? If what God made and if what God sent, if everyone's welcome to it, then it's good news for them. It would only be bad news if some people weren't allowed. What would the church be if God had sent his son and he saved five people and told them, meet on Sundays, don't talk to anyone else, and wait for Jesus to come back? It is good news to find out that you are small. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to get more of that blessing later. It is good news to be told when God did not have to tell you he's going to build a kingdom. And it'll be the only one left because it'll cover the earth. There's no room for a second kingdom when God is done. God wanted to say something to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel already said that. God of heaven wants you to know what he put in your heart. He's letting him know, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a big deal by earthly standards, and that's fine. It's just that I'm up here. It's not arrogant to think that you're big amongst men, amongst mere mortals. That's not necessarily arrogant, as long as you can see the gap between yourself and me. As long as you can see that I'm going to have to be the one to form a kingdom that lasts. So, Hopefully I took us successfully to the end of chapter two. Um, Pastor Dennis has graciously agreed to preach chapter three next week because I've got a bunch of doctor's visits and stuff this week. Um, So I'm excited. I I hope that you guys are getting as much out of Daniel as I am. I'm really enjoying this. Um, It is very comforting to be reminded of the bigness of God and of the goodness of God. Uh, We're seeing a God throughout this book who's in control who does not break a sweat, who does not worry, who does not lose sleep, he doesn't need to sleep, (laughs) right? Um, So I I hope you guys get the courage and the confidence that I feel like my own heart is uh, being called toward. And And I hope that we see in this chapter, guys, and this will show us, as those of us who love Jesus, it'll show us our place Um, we are not the answer. One of the biggest, um, and maybe this is you, if you're here today and you're exploring faith and kicking the tires of Christianity, one of the biggest barriers for a lot of people in our culture when they're talking with a Christian friend is going, you guys are arrogant because you think you know everything, et cetera, this, that, or the other, and... That comes from a misunderstanding of what Christianity is all about. And this chapter shows us exactly what the kingdom of God is all about. Daniel is sitting there saying, I am not a big deal, my God is. That's actually the answer to that particular problem. If you're friend, and if it's you, if you're stumbling, Christians, they think they have all the answers. No, we know the answer. He's a person. One answer I do not know everything. There will be things that I don't ever understand until I get to glory. I I know that God died for me when I did not deserve it. That's what I know. That's not an inherently arrogant position. It's like, actually, I was a sinner to my core. (laughs) Jesus saved me out of his mercy. 
Like that's a very humble position. So that's a hope what we see that here. Daniel is just not making a big deal out of himself, is he? He repeatedly pointed toward God as the source of um, hope, the source of power, the source of all knowledge. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, please give foundation exactly what she needs from this text. Make us humble that we could receive and put into action all of the humility we see from Daniel, the humility that's going to be shoved onto Nebuchadnezzar, the mercy that we see as you speak to rebels. God, grow our faith as we see your power. Help us to trust you. Give us knowledge and wisdom and insight into the book of Daniel, Lord. Not so that our heads would be filled with knowledge, but that our hearts would love you more and our hands and feet would serve you and others better. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. I love you.